Happy Romans Day. Oh man, I'm so excited. All right, let's pray real quick. Father, thank you so much for gathering us here this morning to study your word. Thank you for the healthy and safe birth of Robert last night. Thank you for the other babies who are safe in their mother's wombs. We pray that you would bring them to us safely. Father, have mercy on us this morning. Give me faith. Give me wisdom as I preach. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. How's everybody doing? It's Romans Day. I'm so excited. I, I don't know if it's like college football's back in the air or what. Like, I feel like I should run around the track a couple of times. Um, if you had asked me a couple of months ago when in the life of our church I would want to preach the book of Romans, I would have been like, uh, uh, um, maybe, maybe in 20 years. Um, Romans is huge. Romans is deep. Romans is ultra nerdy. Um, and I'm geeked. And I'm, I like to think I'm cool. And I'm not. I'm a, I'm a Bible nerd. I'm wearing my nerd glasses today. We're going to get nerdy for the next however long it takes us. We're going through the book of Romans. Um, it, why would I say however long it takes? I have no idea. Romans is Romans. People spend years, and I don't mean like one year, two years. They spend three years, five years, ten years preaching through the book of Romans because you can do that with the book of Romans. I'm committed to not doing that. My hope is that we'll get through it like this school year. That's my hope. And that's fast. But we're going to be studying Romans. And listen, it would totally be worth spending years. Okay, so anyhow, Romans is a book that more than any other New Testament letter is probably responsible. And I mean the Bible, right? But Romans, more than any New Testament letter, is maybe responsible for changing the world. Maybe more than any other piece of theology or philosophy ever written. Y'all heard of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, morons. In fact, if you take the word morons and you rearrange the letters, it's a sub and A. Some of you, I, I think, I could be wrong about this. Some of you actually go to Dr. Moran. Is that right? Yeah, that's unfortunate. All right. To say Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, morons. It's not hyperbole. And it's not hyperbole to put, elevate the book of Romans to that level of influence in all of history, in all of Western history, especially. Okay? If we want just one example, Romans was the book that lit Martin Luther on fire when he turned and lit Europe on fire in the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation and everything downstream was lit by the book of Romans. And not just that, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in church history that matters that would not point to Romans as one of the most foundational and influential books of the Bible in their lives. It's that important. It's that essential. Why? Because Romans is the clearest, most detailed, most thorough explanation of what the gospel is. What did Jesus do for us? Why did he do it? 
How do we embrace it? What happens if we don't? What does it say about God? What does it say about God's relationship to the world and everyone in it? And in light of all of that, how do we live? It's all in Romans. It dives deep into human nature, into what makes us tick, into the fundamental problems of human existence, into the problem of our guilty consciences, the conflict inside of each one of us, inside each of our hearts, the battle for good and evil, not just out there in the world, but in here, the difficulty of doing and wanting to do the good things and then doing the bad things anyway, and how does that work? And how do we deal with our guilty consciences before God? How do we deal with our fear of death? It takes all of those things, our inward sin, our condemnation from guilt, our slavery to it all, and it nails them to a tree and it puts them down in the bottom of the ocean. It's the book of Romans. It even deals with the problem of evil and the problem of living in an evil world and the problem of living under an evil government. Speaking of government, if you ever took a civics class, And that civics class taught you that you don't build a government hoping for the best in people, but controlling for the worst. You should have maybe separation of powers, checks and balances, rule of law rather than rule of man. It's all in Romans. It's where it comes from. My freshman year at IU, I took a class on the Protestant Reformation where I started to see how influential Romans was, and I was like, I just got to study Romans. I tried to spend like the, the next year, every day, just reading and studying Romans. Uh, my sophomore year of college, I took a class called Paul and His Influence in Early Christianity, where my ultra-woke professor devoted a lot of time to trying to destroy and take down Romans. Now, he was an enemy of all of Scripture, but he focused on Romans. In fact, he spent so much time on Romans and on Martin Luther that I went out and I bought a Martin Luther bobblehead doll And I brought it to class and I set it on my desk because I was that guy. And somebody needed to be because he hated God and he hated the Christians in that class and he said so. The first day of class, he said, nothing brings me greater joy. Like I wrote this down in my notebook and I've repeated it so many times that this is verbatim. Nothing brings me greater joy than to cause Christians to have crises of faith. Somebody needed to be that guy in that class. So I was that guy. It was great. I got a D. It was horrible. <sighs> I passed, yeah. <laughs> that was the only class I ever got a grade like that in. But I was just committed to like, all right, he hated my guts. And I was probably just a young jerk, but whatever. Where was I? Romans. Romans is all the things. Ultimately, it is the most clear and thorough explanation of the gospel in existence. Why? Well, it's actually a missionary support letter. We'll get to that in its place, in its time. When we come to the end of Romans, what we'll realize is, oh, this is a support letter written by a missionary to people he doesn't know. What's he doing? Well, this is the Apostle Paul who's writing it, and we'll talk about him more in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself, and that's okay. I'm excited. I'm geeking out. But... The Apostle Paul, man, everybody had an opinion about the Apostle Paul. Everybody was weirded out by him. He had a history and a thing, and people were nervous about him and worried about him. And he was intent on preaching the gospel where it had never been proclaimed and planting churches there that would then 
evangelized the surrounding regions, and so he was always looking for a place to go. So most of his letters are written to churches that he planted, but Romans is not. It's written to a church that he's never been to. And that's why it is what it is. Because he's like, I'm trying to get past you. Somebody's already been to Rome, and I need to get past you. I need to get to Spain, because nobody's heard the gospel in Spain. I'm going to stop at Rome, and I want you to be ready for me when I come. I want you to know who I am and what I believe and what I teach and what I preach. And I want to give it to you in such a way as to build you up so that you have no question about the gospel that I preach. In fact, my hope is that it will strengthen you so much that by the time I get there, you'll be like, this is our guy and we're going to send you and we're going to do everything we can to help you get and take this gospel to the ends of the earth. Okay, that's, that's the point. That's the purpose of this letter. Now I'm all off track here. Okay. All right. So he just decides, oh man, I'm a missionary. I need to write a support letter. I'm just going to write like one of the greatest expositions of the gospel and influential things in the history of the world. And that's basically what happens through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. All right. Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. A servant of Christ Jesus? Was that always the case? We have Paul. What do we know about the apostle Paul? What do you guys got? Anything? A persecutor of the church. Okay, he was a Pharisee. One of the types of people that Jesus opposed. He was an intellectual. He was an ideologue. He studied, he studied under a man named Gamaliel, one of the preeminent uh, biblical scholars of the time. Okay, this is like saying uh, he went to Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Yale. Okay, this is like Ivy League. He's that guy, okay? He's the genius in the room. He was multilingual. Just crazy genius. And he was also a zealous persecutor of the church. The way that only a true ideologue can be. Beware of ideologues. They're always dangerous because they don't see people. They see ideas and ideals and people are in the way. That's what he was. But then Jesus got in Paul's way. Literally. And Jesus did not move. He came down and he called Paul and he set him apart for the gospel. Paul was on his way to a place called Damascus to persecute God's people. And there he met Jesus on the road and Jesus changed everything. How? He took a violent, murderous ideologue and he turned him into a servant. That's how. Into a slave. Paul went from being a persecutor to becoming a pastor. He became a servant of Christ Jesus, the kind of servant who walked the entire Mediterranean preaching the gospel and suffering for it. This is what he says about himself. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, were treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live. 
as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. This, that's from 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 6. Later on, when he's talking about uh, super apostles or false apostles, false messengers of the gospel, and he's comparing himself to them, this is what he says. These are his credentials. Okay, he doesn't go back and say, this is what he says. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, remember, on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, Jesus meets him before he gets there. He's going to tell us what happened. You can read about it in the book of Acts. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. On his way to Damascus to persecute the church, ends up being let down over the wall in a basket because he met Jesus. Jesus turned him into a servant. The net result Paul planted churches across the Mediterranean and into Europe at regional hubs. He installed evangelists and elders in those churches that then, turned, that then in turn planted churches in the surrounding regions that they had influence on. That's our vision. That's our hope. He is the world's first great missionary church planner. His ministry is chronicled in the book of Acts. Before it was all said and done, he wrote at least 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, or 14 if you think he wrote Hebrews. In any case, roughly half of the New Testament, he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Aside from Jesus himself, you would be hard-pressed to argue that there is a more influential figure in modern history. Jesus says, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? become the servant of everyone. That's what Paul did. He followed his master, Jesus, who came to serve, and he was made great in the kingdom of heaven. And it would be hard to argue that there was a less deserving person of God's mercy and grace than the apostle Paul. It would be hard to argue that there was anyone less worthy of a second chance than the apostle Paul. Paul himself certainly didn't think so. He called himself the chief of sinners, and it wasn't false humility. He was literally responsible, and get this in your heads, the person whose letter we're about to read was literally responsible for sending innocent men and women to their deaths. 
He was the ideologue that wanted to round up the innocent Christians and send them to the gulags. That's who he was. This is what is written about him in the book of Acts. After Stephen was stoned, the deacon Stephen was stoned to death. And Saul, that's Paul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now just stop and think about that. Are you a Christian? Do you live in Jerusalem? Have you grown up here? Have you lived here? Has your family been here your whole life? You had better get out of town. It's an exodus because of the intensity of what this man is doing. You had better run. He is coming to your home. He doesn't care if you're a man, a woman. He is going to round you up. You better leave everything. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul, that's Paul, was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's who he was. He was that guy. And that wasn't all. A couple chapters later, we read this. But Saul, that's Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Why would he want to bring them bound to Jerusalem? Because in Jerusalem, they could be lawfully executed for blasphemy. That's why. He was a murderer. He was an ideologue. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Paul tells us himself. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the chief. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What's he saying? He's saying, if I can stand here and be saved, if I am not so low as to be beyond the mercy of Jesus, there's nobody in the room that is beyond the mercy of Jesus Christ. The whole point of me, the murderous ideologue, being saved was to show you that you are not beyond hope. It doesn't matter who you are and it does not matter how much you have sinned. First couple of chapters, we're gonna talk a lot about sin. But Jesus came to save sinners. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. If, the, if Paul can be changed, you can be changed. If there's hope for Paul, there is hope for you. If you're a sinner, it means you're just qualified to receive God's grace and mercy. That's it. 
Are you willing to become a servant? If Paul can be saved, you can be saved. If he can be changed, you can be changed. If there's hope for him, there is hope for you. If he could live the life that he did, overseeing the executions of innocent people, dragging them off to prison, and God could still use him, it does not matter where you are in your life. God can use you. If God can use Paul to change the world, God can use you to change the world. You won't become an apostle, you will not write scripture, but if you are willing to become a servant of Christ Jesus, God can and will do great things with you. But it has to be about Jesus. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember, he's, he's genius, right? Slot to untangle there. What does it mean? This is not about Paul. This is about Jesus. Paul is about Jesus. Romans is about Jesus. Who is Jesus? What does it mean? Promise before and in the scriptures. God's son, but the son of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. What does all that mean? Here's what it means. Jesus is the eternally begotten son of God. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. He is in fact fully God. He is also the son of David, fully man, and not just any man, but a man descended not just from Adam, but from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and eventually David the king. He's the high king of heaven and the king of creation, fully God and fully man, and the true heir of all things, of all of God's promises. He is the eternal God, the Lord of all, and he came to earth and he was born as a baby to a little girl named Mary. He grew up in a small town. When he turned 30, he began to declare the good news that God's kingdom had come and was being fulfilled in him. The poor loved him. The religious intellectual elite, Paul's people, hated him. So he was tortured, crucified, and buried in a tomb. And then, three days later, he walked out, and he is still alive today. And this is the gospel that Paul proclaimed. He ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns from on high as our king. He came to save us from our sins. He was promised to us from the very beginning, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the snake. He is everywhere throughout the Old Testament. He is God, he is man, he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Every promise God ever made is fulfilled in him. It is all true. It was all there all along. Jesus is Lord. Question is, what will we do with that? Look at what comes next. Through whom, that is Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus is king. He will reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The apostle Paul was set apart for a mission. And that mission was to bring about the obedience of faith for all nations, that men and women from every tongue and tribe and nation would hear the good news, 
would believe in Jesus and obey him. That work started 2,000 years ago and it continues to this day. And it will continue until Jesus reigns over every tongue, tribe, and nation of this earth. Every knee will bow. Even you, who are called to belong to Jesus, which is what he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And don't ever get tired of saying and pointing this out. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born in a barn in a little town called Bethlehem on the other side of the world. And today, 2,000 years later, here we are at the ends of the earth in a cornfield in Indiana, worshiping him. We are part of the mission and the mission isn't over, but it will be completed. Jesus will win. Okay, so if that is you, if you are called to belong to Jesus, if you have bowed before him as Paul did, as countless others before you have. This is God's word to you right here. To all those in Rome, to all those here who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saints. You are God's holy ones, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. You are saints in Christ Jesus. And if that is you, these two gifts are for you. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Take it from God. Take it from the Apostle Paul. Take it from 2,000 years of church history. The best decision you will ever make in your life is to follow Jesus Christ. To bow your knee before him and to become his servant. To receive from him grace and peace, mercy, forgiveness, peace of conscience, peace with God. The two things we can't live without. The two things we need most in this world. The two things this world needs the most, grace and peace. Over the next several weeks and months, we're going to learn, like we've never learned before, why we need God's grace. The next couple weeks, it's going to get intense. Because as Paul works through the gospel, he starts with what we need and why. Why we need the mercy of God. Why we need the grace of God. Why we need the peace of God. Rebellion and hypocrisy. That's where we're headed. Some of it will be intense. Some of it will be challenging. All of it will be good. I'm excited. I'm excited about where that takes us as a church. But now we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's table together. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. It's a sermon. It's a visible sermon of what God has done. It is God's grace to us and it is God's peace. Listen to what God's word says to us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night which he was betrayed, I always open the wine first, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay. This table is for those who belong to Jesus. Okay? It's for baptized believers in good standing of a Bible-believing church, any Bible-believing church, not just this one. But you must be walking with Jesus. You must be able to look at yourself and say, sinner, check. God help me. I need Jesus. And you must be committed to walking with him, not living in unrepentant sin, but putting your sin aside, putting it to death daily and coming. So if you're a sinner and you know it, and you're following Jesus, come. Eat, drink, and rejoice in God's grace and peace to you. Let's pray.